So today is a special day. Today is Ascension Sunday. Ascension Sunday is sometimes called the Assumption Sunday. I prefer the word ascension over assumption because when I hear assumption, I think of people assuming things and uh, making a mess when you assume. So uh, anyway, back in the day, to assume also carried the same meaning of, of sort of being brought up or ascending. Uh, anyway, it's Ascension Sunday, and so I thought it would be good to focus our minds and our hearts on the significance of Jesus ascending into heaven. That said, the title of my message today is Up, Up, and Away. As, as a kid, this was sort of a cliched phrase that superheroes would use. You know, the superhero genre, typically right before a superhero uh, finished their work, finished their job, the superhero would fly up into the air and, you know, up, up and away. And, you know, all the people that the superhero saved or whatever look up in the sky. You know, it's a bird, it's a plane, what is it? You know, it's a superhero, comes, does the work, rescues the people, and then up, up and away. Well, similarly, I think of Jesus, who after finishing his work of discipleship and the cross of Calvary and the resurrection, he flew up, up, and away into the sky. In making this comparison of Jesus and a superhero, of course, uh, I, I must say that he was no mere fictitious hero. He is a real man of history who, more than a man of history, was God of eternity, God the Son in the flesh. Now, speaking of history, would you please open your Bibles to the book of Acts this historical document that comes to us from the first century, and draw your way, book of Acts, to the first chapter. In a moment, we are going to read from this opening chapter, this historical document, and, and we are going to read here from one of the ancient historical accounts of when Jesus stood before his disciples, very likely on the Mount of Olives, and he did the up, up, and away, and ascended into heaven. Now, skeptics may try to claim that this was made up by the disciples. You know, the disciples made up all of this stuff about, you know, the resurrection or whatever. Uh, I, I gave a full treatment on why that's not the case in our Easter message this year. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. The disciples didn't make up the resurrection account. Uh, as, as evidence against it, you know, the, the, the skeptics of the day could not produce the body. If you produce the body, then the claim is, is over. Furthermore, they couldn't explain the empty tomb. Furthermore, you can't explain the psychology of deceit. We know, scientifically speaking, uh, psychologically speaking, that people lie for a benefit. You lie to, to get something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. You lie uh, so, so as to obtain some sort of benefit. You lie about the car you don't own to get the girl that doesn't like you. You, you lie about the you know, degree you don't have to get the job that you really want. You lie for a benefit. No one lies to, to, you know, to get mud thrown in their face, let alone to be killed. The disciples were killed for the claims of the resurrection. And tethered to those claims were the claims of ascension. They went to their graves claiming they saw Jesus go up, up, and away. No, no, no one dies for something that they know is a lie, and they are the eyewitnesses of this. Well, skeptics may claim, well, okay, may, may, maybe, based on our evidence of psychology, maybe it, it, it was... It, was, uh, it wasn't, you know, sort of this thing that they made up, but it was something that they hallucinated, you know. They, they hallucinated him alive from the dead. Uh, they, they sort of projected it. They hallucinated him alive from the dead, and they hallucinated him, oh, you know, they hallucinated him going up into heaven. Scientifically speaking, this doesn't stand to scrutiny either because hallucinations, we know, psychologically are individual events. Whereas the ascension was an event that was seen by groups of people, multiple witnesses, Hallucinations, further, are subjective psychological experiences that take place in the mind of a person. 
An individual has a subjective experience where they, they think they're seeing something or hearing something that really isn't there. Whereas in the case of a group, a group is experiencing something that is external to them so that they can confirm and go, dude, did you see that? Whoa, did you see that? Whoa, look at that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're confirming an external event. It's, you, you don't have hallucinations scientifically with groups. The skeptics are certainly within their rights to deny the historical event. Uh, I mean, you go ahead, you're, you're a free person. You can deny the historical event of resurrection and ascension. But uh, to be clear, you're out of pocket if you claim that we as followers of Jesus do not have a reason for believing in this historic event. In addition to the eyewitness testimony in history, we have a holiday before us today. Millions around the world are celebrating, which in, which in and of itself suggests something happened. Indeed, something did. You see, during this week, 2,000 years ago, Jesus ascended into heaven. Historians believe that it took place on Thursday of this week, and hence believers refer to the holy day of Holy Thursday. It is also called, as I said, Ascension or Assumption Day, um, Ascension Thursday. And so for this reason, uh, Christians gather on the Sunday following, and they call it Ascension or Assumption Sunday. It is actually the seventh Sunday from Easter, and so it is also referred to as Seventh Sunday. You see, historically speaking, following the historical Jesus of Nazareth, history records that he appeared, after rising from the dead, he appeared for a period of 40 days to his disciples and hundreds of eyewitnesses. And then on the day of Holy Thursday, he left the earth and was taken up to heaven, where he now, to this day, sits at the right hand of the Father, continuing the work that he began in the earth from heaven, leading the church in the earth for the good of the world. Further, he is filling his church by his spirit with anticipation for his return in the last days to deliver us from evil and renew all things. We see this anticipation for this renewal in the last days in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, which I ask you to turn to. And this gives us reason as well in Acts chapter 1 for the historicity of the event of Ascension, Holy Thursday. Let's read the text, Acts chapter 1. Draw your eyes at verse 1, please. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them for a period of 40 days and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Notice how the account begins. It's not once upon a time many moons ago. This isn't fiction genre. This is historical testimony. Uh, you, you have an author, uh, Luke, the historian, a physician as well by training. He's an intelligent man. He knows medicine, he knows science, and he knows history. He's a part of the eyewitness community, and he's documenting the convincing proofs of the claims that have been made. Now he speaks here in verse 3 of Jesus gathering the disciples together, and he's talking to them about the biblical topic of the kingdom of God. Gathering them, verse 4, together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Uh, you see, that's the anticipation. I, I said he's filling the church with anticipation. That's the anticipation. 
He's going to come back. He's going to bring His kingdom. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They're awaiting a day when the king will return. Well, the king can't return until the king leaves, and so the ascension has to precede the return. And so he's talking to them about the kingdom so that they understand this, because in his ascension, he knows there's going to be some cognitive dissonance. Which, by the way, in terms of hallucination, people hallucinate what they project or what they believe. The ascension catches them off guard, as we will see. He said to them, uh, uh, verse 7, "...it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority." But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You see, this is the part about Jesus leading His church. To the very end, before He ascends, and even in His ascension, He continues to lead the church. There, there was confusion about when the kingdom was going to come, and He says, hey, that's not the epoch, that's not the time, that's not the age, that's about to pop off right now. What's about to pop off right now is the church. And I'm sending you on a mission to herald what it is that I have done. You've been with me for years. I've trained you. I've taught you scripture. And now you're going to go and do exactly what I did and carry that message out to the ends of the earth and proclaim that the king has come and he's coming again. The, the, the time for the kingdom to be ushered in and the renewal of the earth and, and, and the covenant with the land and Israel and all that, 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 that's going to be later. Right now, we have work to do. Go proclaim what it is that I have done. He said to them, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. Uh, anticipate it, be ready for it, but go and share the good word. Verse 9, look at the text. It says, and after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That's Holy Thursday. Jesus lifted up. The word that is used here in verse 9 Epirthe uh, is a word that is used for like holstering up something or like grabbing something and lifting it up, up, up and away. Epirthe, Jesus goes up to heaven. That said, let me say something quickly here in terms of our terms. In speaking of heaven as up, okay, we need to understand there's a sense in which that is colloquial. Uh, when we say, oh, heaven is up or whatever. More technically, heaven is not up per se, but heaven is another realm entirely. It's another realm. It's, you know, people talk about the multiverse or whatever. It's, a, it's another realm entirely. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus spoke of the kingdom being from another realm and, and, and spoke alluding to the day when that kingdom will merge into this realm. So we, we think of heaven as, as another realm, not so much to the left, to the right, or up or down, or way beyond yonder, but it's another realm entirely altogether. So it's not like you're going to uh, get in an Elon Musk capsule and you know, try, to, try to find heaven or something like that in that regard. And yet to the same extent, uh, colloquially, it, it is still appropriate to talk about heaven as being up. That's perfectly fine. In John chapter 17, verse 1, we read of Jesus, how he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he prayed to the Father. John 17, 1, we read in 1 Timothy 2, 8, how, how Paul spoke about lifting up our hands in prayer. There's a sense in which this up is a very real way of talking about heaven and where God is. He is up. He's in another realm. In any case, the disciples of Jesus and the crowds, they watched Jesus go up. The text says he went up. That's the language of the text here. Look back at Acts chapter 1. After the ascension, then two angels appear. They are described as, as men in heavenly clothing in verse 10. 
And look at what these angels say in verse 11. They say, men of Galilee, verse 11, why do you stand looking into the sky? They were looking up. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, Jesus is filling his church with anticipation of the day when the king will return, of the day when the, when the kingdom will come. Uh, they just watched him go up, and that was a mind-blowing thing, because moments ago they are like, hey, when's the kingdom popping off? Let's do this. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's overthrow evil. Let's, let's make everything right. Let's have total shalom and rest. He goes up. He goes up, up, and away. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of being caught up to the third heaven. In 1 Timothy 3.16, there's a, a, a hymn that mentions Jesus who was taken up in glory. The, the word for taken, analambao, is a word that is used to describe ascension here in Acts 1.11. It's, it's the same word, analambao. So up talk is appropriate. Up, up, in a way is appropriate. Although in this case, our hero actually hadn't finished his work. So, you know, colloquially, we talk about the superhero genre, and, you know, Superman comes, he's like, yeah, I'll rescue you, I'll, you know, overthrow the bad guy, and then up, up, and away, because the work is done. It, with regards to Jesus, the work wasn't done. There was still work to be done on the other side in the heavens, which is what we're going to talk about today. But for now, by way of introduction, we see the ascension, we see the going up. It is no wonder that the ancient followers of Jesus in the centuries that followed would use this uh, Greek word analipsis to refer to Holy Thursday. You say, oh, what are you doing for an analipsis this week? What, what are you guys going to do? Oh, we'll get the family together. We're going to eat some lamb and, you know, chop it up. It's going to be great. Uh, where are you going for analipsis? That's what they referred to the holiday as. Analipsis literally means taking up. It is, it is found in ancient fragments of papyrus uh, it, in 310. It is used to speak about Jesus' ascension into heaven. In fact, uh, to this day in the Eastern Church, the holiday is known by that ancient word, analipsis, taking up, and they also refer to it as episomene, episomene, which literally means salvation from on high. Episomene, salvation from on high. What a fitting phrase. It's clutch in capturing the reason for the season. Namely, that by ascending into heaven, our Savior and Lord Jesus the Christ finalized His work the work of his life, the work of redemption, and by going up, up, and away, he took his work and continues his work that he accomplished on earth into a heavenly realm in his body. In the Eastern Church, they sing a, an ancient hymn known as the uh, Troparion, which is accompanied by old Byzantine music. They, they have songs in the Troparion that go back to the 300s. And in their playlist, Troparion, tone four, it is worth actually reading together, so I'm going to put it in front of us, and if you would join with me in reading along with me, uh, something that uh, believers have been chanting for a long time. So get ready. One to the two to the three. O oh Christ God, you ascended in glory, granting joy to your disciples by the promise of the Holy Spirit. Through the blessing they were assured, that you are the Son of God, the Redeemer of the world. Now, skeptics may try to deny this day, Holy Thursday, and ellipses, but the gathering of the saints who sing this, it shows, like, there, there are people that are convinced of this, 
And you, you can't just write it off as psychological protection. You, you have to deal with the evidences at hand. Uh, there, there, are, there are people who witnessed this event who passed on that eyewitness testimony, so, so much so that today people are still singing about this. Uh, further, it begs to the darkness. It, it begs to differ and it begs to the darkness to come to the light, to see the Savior who is risen and ascended. Along with, with, with seeing Him with eyes of faith, we come with knees in repentance before the Savior who has taken the salvation that He has accomplished for His people on earth into heaven. In the heavens He has risen. In the heavens He has a glorified human body. He is the first fruit and the picture of what is to come for His people. We will one day, as, as He, have resurrection bodies. And we will one day, uh, till His kingdom comes, experience these things. To be in the heavens, to be risen, to have a new body, to be set free from the stain of sin. Now speaking of His people, those of us left on earth who love Him and follow Him, we, we've been saved by Him. We've been redeemed by Him. We, we've rebelled against God, and, and we, we were once enemies with God, but, but God the Son has come to redeem us and reconcile us to the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. For many of us, we think about that reconciliation, and, and many of us, we think about this mission He's given us to go into the world and, and share about what Jesus has done. Uh, for many of us, we might find the, the, the ascension, though, if we haven't really studied it, many of us might find it kind of curious. I, I mean, you know, why did he have to do that? Why couldn't he have just stayed? This would have been really true for his first followers, and you get the hint of that in Acts 1. There, you know, it's like, hey, why aren't you staying? What's all this talk about going? You know, like, like what's the deal here? Follow me. If, if you followed him, if you knew him, if you loved him, your close companion, your friend, right, you, you'd be like, what, why are you talking about leaving? It would have been so hard to watch him leave. Uh, you know, this, this morning during our, our, our time of community uh, news, we shared about Terrence leaving. It's, it's, it's sad when someone you love, uh, you know, moves. And here Jesus is talking about moving. That would have been hard for them. They, they went through the cross, right? They denied him. He comes and reconciles with them. They've been hanging out for over a month together and things seem to be going fine. And now he's talking about leaving? You've given years of your life to follow Him. People have been attacking you for your belief in Him. Why did you give up your fishing jobs? Why did you give up your tax collector job? What are you doing with your lives following this guy? And now He's risen from the dead. And, and, and now you can go to all your friends who gave you a hard time about why you left your job and why you left your friends and why you left your neighborhood to follow after this itinerant rabbi you go, yeah, look, who, look, who's, look who's right now. Because remember, we were all there because crucifixions were public and, you know, uh, in that culture, if you wanted something to do on a Friday night, you just go watch people get tortured. I know it's kind of dark, but whatever. Uh, we have our own, we, we, we do dark things too, so let, let us not judge the past. But, you know, you watched him impaled and dead on the thing. You watched the Roman soldiers spear, spear him to make sure he was dead, right? And, and now here he is eating fish sticks with us. Yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. I told you he's the man. I told you. I told you. I told you. That would be the ultimate apologetic proof. Right? Jesus, right there. Your friends, why do you believe in him? Uh, well, show up on Wednesday at our Bible study. I'll introduce you to him. You can see the scars, doubting Thomas. You know, that would be the ultimate apologetic. Wouldn't that be great? You, you know, just, just, hey, he's right here. Why do you need to leave? 
We got the ultimate apologetic for our faith embodied in you. Why do you have to leave? Can you imagine if he lingered for just, I don't know, 100 years or a millennium or something? Or maybe even two millennium and he was still with us today? You know, and we're like, hey, we're planning this trip to Israel in 2024. Uh, it's going to be great. We're going to see all the holy sites or whatever. And our tour guide has arranged for us to have tea with Jesus. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be great? You know, all your friends who are skeptics or whatever, they'd just be shut down, one might think. Because we could, you know, we could send scientists and medical doctors to Jesus' house, his flat in Tel Aviv, his humble kibbutz in Jerusalem, and they could go and they could confirm and take a sample of his blood and go, man, this blood is 2,000 years old. Have, have him, you know, have him uh, uh, cough and have, you know, just like, here he is. This, this guy's 2,000 years old. Uh, there you go. There's the evidence. That would make evangelism a lot easier, wouldn't it? And yet Jesus disagreed with such a thought. Jesus said in John 16, let me put this in front of you, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We need to be reminded of this. That his ascension is an incredibly good thing. As, as much as we might be inclined to think, oh man, it'd be so cool just to like jump on a plane, go to Tel Aviv and hang out with Jesus for a day. No, no, no he said it, it is better that I go. Further, we need to be reminded with this musing that I've put before you, we need to be reminded that the human problem is not a lack of evidence. The human problem is sin. And sin isn't brought to repentance through evidence. It doesn't bring life that way. You might have friends who don't believe, and you could present them with all the reasons that we have for our faith, but at the end of the day, evidence isn't what changes us. Repentance and faith. And the grace of God is what changes us. Our, our problem is sin. And the only thing that will remedy the problem of sin is the Holy Spirit. We must be born again. We must be regenerated. We must, must have a work from God inside of us to open our eyes to see Him. We know that it is the Spirit's power. Acts 1, 8, in front of you, what did He say? The Holy Spirit is going to come and, he, and, and He's going to give power to Christ's church. In fact, you got John 16, verse 7 up here in front of you and see the ellipses here. I, I, I intentionally held off because now look at, look at the rest of the verse. He speaks, For if I do not go away, the Helper, speaking of the Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. The Spirit is to come after the Christ ascends. This is the will of God. This is the plan of God in redemption. And, and just as it was important for the Son to leave heaven and come to earth and do what He did, it is also important for Him to ascend and for the Spirit to come and do the work that He is doing right now in Christ's church. Now next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, so I'll save what I would like to say right now about all that good stuff for next week because this sermon is already going to be long enough as it is. So next week we'll talk about Pentecost Sunday. I've been gone for a few weeks, so i got a lot of pent-up preaching aggression for you you'll see in your outline that there's a number of biblical passages that we could talk about that are relevant to Ascension Sunday. You have those in, in your outline for you, and uh, you know, I want to encourage you to use those and study those. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to move from the passages to make some points and weave these passages together. I'm going to weave them together and, 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 and try to go quickly as, as, as I can. So let's move from these passages to the points. Ascension does not happen in a vacuum. Ascension is a part of a greater story. Jesus flying up into heaven, or even, you know, Christmas, uh, the eternal Son coming, 
and, and being the historical Jesus, these things don't happen in a vacuum. It is always important to have the bigger story in mind. If you walk into a movie late and you're like, who's Frodo? What's going on? What kind of ring is that? Like, oh my gosh, be quiet and, you know, come on time for Pete's sake. You know, you, you, if you walk in late, you, you, you miss stuff. Uh, this, the story of ascension begins with the story of creation. You see that in the list of passages. The first passage that I have listed is Genesis 1 through 3. You, you, you see Genesis 1 through 3. In Genesis, God creates. Everything that God creates is good. God is dwelling with humanity. He's with humanity. He's in paradise with humanity. They're together with Him. Uh, God has, has come to the earth. God has made the earth, and He's come to the earth, and they're in the presence of God. Now, now creation is disturbed by corruption. There is, there, there is a rebellion that takes place where those who have been given life by the Creator take that life that was given to them and they rebel against the Creator. And so the punishment of that is the taking back of life. They undergo immediate spiritual death and a slow biological death that, 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 that is then underway, not only in their bodies, but in the creation itself. The wages of sin is death. You've rebelled against the giver of life. And so this triune God, though, is a God of love, and He responds to this rebellion with love. And He promises to them that He will clean up the mess. There's a, a foreshadowing there of a, of a covering of flesh that will be provided for them. God provides a sacrifice and, and covers them in their sin. Along with the sacrifice, God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15. I'll put it up here. He says to the man and the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and he shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, the, the heel who is bruised, the, the, the one who is bruised, is, is, is speaking of a figure who will come and save them. The, the, the he, the other he in this text, is, is, is personified evil. This is the devil. There is a, there is a, a rebellion that is taking place of humans and fallen angels against the Creator God. The, the word for seed that is used here, the word zarah, means offspring or descendant. In, in the singular form, it can refer to seed, or like a seed, or it can refer to one descendant. It can also refer to a group of descendants. In English, we use the word seed this way. I say this because we have the seed of Eve in the text in a collective sense, referring to her descendants. And we also have the seed of one descendant, one deliverer, who would come. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we refer to this as the proto-euangelion. Proto, meaning first. Euangelion is the ancient word for gospel. This is the first giving of the gospel. People think of John 3, 16. Well, tell you what, there's something that, that came way before John 3, 16. It's Genesis 3, 15. This is the first promise. Adam and Eve are encouraged by this news. God covers them. God gives them a promise. He says one day this is going to come. And as you follow the creation account into the book of Genesis, you see moving from creation, you see God's relationship with the creation has changed. He's removed His presence from the earth. But He is still active in the earth, but His, his presence is less felt. In terms of His activity, what He does next in the storyline is He brings covenant to the historical figure Abram. We move from creation, corruption, to covenant. In a general sense, a covenant is a binding agreement or a compact between two or more parties. It's formally sealed. God comes to a descendant of Adam, this man named Abram, and he makes Abram into the father of a new people through whom he will rescue the creation. 
In Genesis chapter 12, I'll put it in front of you. The Lord said to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the, the, the promise to, to Israel. Abram will become the father of Israel. This is what they were asking in Acts. Is it at this time that you're going to restore this, this promise to Israel? It begins here. It begins here, this Abrahamic covenant. The word for covenant, berit, is a word that literally means to cut. In the ancient world, when people made covenants, it was common for them to take an animal. This is gross. This is gross. Peter won't be happy about it. Take an animal and cut it in half and set the, the parts of the carcass on two sides. And then the two parties forming the covenant would stand in between them and they would make their agreement. It's a vi very vivid symbol to death do us part. We're, we're in this. If we, if we break covenant, may this be to us. There is the cutting of this. Uh, in fact, God does this with Abram. And further, there is the, the cutting of circumcision, which is the mark of this promise. And so in Genesis 17, God instructs Abram, having received this covenant from him, Genesis 12, to mark that covenant in the flesh with circumcision. Scholars note that any Israelite male who was not circumcised was actually cut off. Berit. You see the word play? You get the cut to mark you in. You don't get the cut. You're cut off. You're cut off from the kin of your father. You're cut off from the covenant of blessing. Those outside of the covenant were described as uncircumcised, godless, wicked enemies of God. So, so God cuts a deal, and his people are marked by a cut. And, and those people go from Abram to Isaac to Jacob. Follow the storyline. And then the seed promise comes as he brings them to the land. Is it at this time you're going to restore? They, 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 they get to the land, and they, they come to the land, and God's making them into this people, and he's going to use them to reverse the curse of the fall and all of that. God raises up a king, David. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read of a covenant made to David. The Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up an offspring after you, and you, they'll come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. And so, so there's the promise to Abram that the people are going to be in a place, and they're going to bring this prosperity, this blessing to the world. And then there's the promise given to David that from the people, he's going to raise up a king who's going to come through that seed, who's going to rescue the people. Now these covenants come to head in Christ. Christ is the seed. So we move them from the corruption to the covenant to the Christ. Jesus fulfills the promises that were made to our mother Eve and our father Adam, of the one who will come and crush the kingdom of darkness, to our father Abram, of the, of the one who will come, who will bring the people to the place and bring this prosperity to the world and renew things, of the covenant made to David, of a king who will rule forever. Jesus does this. His miraculous birth, his innocent life, his vicarious death. He does this. He paid what he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And beyond the payment, he rose from the dead. Often we talk of payment. We talk about what Jesus has done without making clear who Jesus is. The one making the payment is God the Son in the flesh. God didn't send a third party to clean up the mess. He has come himself. And, and, and often we, we will stop there even in talking about what he has done, his life, his death, and resurrection, and we forget ascension is a part of the package. Remember that Jesus spoke about his death before he died. He also spoke about his ascension before he died. 
Consider a few examples from John's Gospel. John chapter 6, we're going to move quickly here. When Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, John 6, 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Ascension was important. He talks about it a lot. Later in John 7, when the crowds were, were growing and the Pharisees were, were drinking that haterade on him, we read, uh, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. For where I'm going, you cannot come. He talks a lot about this. Ascension is really important. In John 14, uh, 12, in John 14, 28, he spoke of going to the Father. In John 16, 10, in John 16, 17, look at these. It's all about going to the Father. And remember what he told them. It was to their advantage that he was going to go. In other words, we might think that, oh man, the 12 disciples, they had it so, so made. Actually, we have it better than them, according to Jesus. Okay? He's going to go to the Father. He's not talking about the cross. He's talking about the ascension. Jesus would not ascend until his suffering was complete. He would not be lifted up to heaven until after he was lifted up on Calvary. That is a part of God's plan of redemption and his fulfillment with the covenants that were made to Abram and David. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke is the one who wrote Acts. He wrote Luke and Acts as two volumes. In the Gospel of Luke, there is a genealogy that ties Jesus to Abram and Jesus to Adam to show that he is the fulfillment of the promises of those covenants to the seed. As well, Jesus is tied in the Gospel of Luke to David. In fact, in Luke's Gospel narrative, the narrative of Jesus' life, it, it's written with overtones mirroring the life of David to show that Jesus is the new David, the new King of Israel. In fact, if you will, turn from Acts now to the left and find your way to the Gospel of Luke and find your way to the 19th chapter in the Gospel of Luke. In the Hebrew Bible, David appears in obscurity, in weakness. In the Hebrew Bible, he, he, he appears from the margins. He comes in weakness. He's a, 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 a mere shepherd. He then becomes the, the favored of a puppet king, King Saul, but then is forced into hiding when the puppet king, Saul, is paranoid that David is going to take his throne. Later, Saul would die and David would return to Jerusalem as the king and he would conquer their oppressors, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God. Looking back to paradise, paradise lost, God, Genesis, being with the people. The, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of getting back to Eden. And so, so David appears on the margins. David is a nobody who steps in. David is one who a paranoid, corrupt, dark king presses upon and David disappears in obscurity only to return into Jerusalem and be hailed as king and bring the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And shortly after appearing in Jerusalem, David would be overthrown by Absalom, who dies, and then David comes back to Jerusalem as king with the desire to build the temple. I tell you this so that you can see it now in Luke, in Jesus. Keep that Davidic storyline in mind and now think about Luke's narrative. Jesus appears like David in obscurity and weakness. Jesus is a child of teenage peasants. There is another paranoid king. It's not Saul, it's Herod. And he wants the child dead. Like David, the child flees. In the course of his life, he keeps a low profile, even in his ministry. Jesus, as he begins, he's like, hey, don't tell anyone I did this. Hey, keep it on the down low or whatever. His ministry is, is a bit on the margins because there are paranoid powers that want him dead, and so he keeps a low profile so that he can train his disciples. On Palm Sunday, what happens? He rides into Jerusalem, and he is held as king. Just as David was on the margins, comes into Jerusalem and is hailed as king, so too the new David comes in the margins, comes into Jerusalem, and is hailed as king. 
The overtones in the scene of Jesus as the new David in Palm Sunday and in Luke's Gospel are amazing. I ask you to turn to Luke 19 to look at this chapter. Look at verse 38. The people are shouting for the king who was promised in Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see that? Jesus rides on a donkey, which the prophet Zechariah foresaw in Zechariah 9.9. Luke chapter 20, look at 20, flip to 20, and find your eyes uh, upon verses 41 through 44. You see there Jesus uses Psalm 110 to show that he is the son of David, who was the greater Messiah, who was to be David's Lord. In the beginning of our public worship, we read that passage. I told you it's important to come on time to hear these things because then you see how our opening fits with the feast of the sermon. Look at the text here, Luke 20, verse 41. Then he said, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he his son? You see, this is the one of prophecy. Unlike David, this one does not bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. He doesn't need to. He is the Ark of Covenant. He is the presence of God in the flesh. Also, unlike David, he doesn't overthrow their political oppressors. But like David, he is overcome by another Absalom. That is the cross of Calvary. And like David, he returns to Jerusalem again, which is what Jesus did after his resurrection, which is why it makes sense that what we saw in Acts 1, his disciples would say, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom? But like David, he starts speaking about his desire to build a temple. Not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple of the body of Christ. And get this, in a strange twist, Palm Sunday is not the triumphant entry. Ascension Thursday is the triumphant entry. It, 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 it foreshadows Jesus in Jerusalem. It, it, it shows the ascension. Look at, look at what was written. For sake of time, I'll throw this in front of you. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51. In Luke 9, 51, we read, When the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is intentionally capitulating the life of David and fulfillment. i got to get to Jerusalem. Why? Oh, because the cross and you're going to die and all that? No, I'm, I'm teeing this up for ascension. In Acts chapter 2, verse 34, Luke records Peter saying, David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, David's kingship pointed to a greater king, and that king is Jesus of Nazareth. David is not the ultimate seed of promise, nor the king. Sure, he was a king for Israel in a period of time, but, but never not the king of the world, because he didn't ascend into heaven. He can't make that claim. His throne, David's throne, was only in Jerusalem for a short period of time. Jesus reigns from Jerusalem to heaven and beyond over all creation as, as, as our coming king. And he is more than King David, for David was a mortal man. He's disembodied. His body is in the ground. But Jesus is the immortal Son of God in the flesh as mortal man, and his body's not in the ground. It's risen from the dead, and it flew up into heaven. Luke chapter 22 Draw your eyes at verse 66. Jesus is on trial. We read, When it was that day, the council of the elders, Luke twenty-two sixty-six. 66, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you you're not going to believe. If I ask a question, you're not going to answer. 
But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, the title Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite self-designations for himself in the Gospel accounts. It, it is a figure that appears in uh, the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a messianic figure. Here Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man. That figure you've been reading about in the Bible your whole lives, that's me. And I will be seated at the right hand of God, which is a messianic reference directly from the prophet Daniel in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. The figure comes in Daniel 7, riding on the clouds of heavens, and he enters into the heavenly court of God. In, in Daniel, this figure then is given dominion over the earth. The Ancient of Days, God the Father, tells the Son, your kingdom is never going to pass away. Verse 70, Luke 22, verse 70, continuing on, and they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yup, yup, yes I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of any testimony? We have heard it from ourselves, from his own mouth. And they go on to sentence him to his death. Now I show you so that you see that Jesus spoke of ascension all over the place. I, I, I'm called to be a teacher in Christ's church, and, and so it's a burden that I, that I carry that often I see believers put a huge premium on right the cross. The cross. You go, yes, 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 the cross. But also His innocent life, also His miraculous birth, you know, uh, also the resurrection. Right? These are all these, and ascension. We don't talk about it enough. He's ascended. He's rode into the heavens. Dan Daniel 7, he's fulfilled this messianic picture. The messianic figure comes with a cloud of heavens, not to the earth, but the earth to heaven. Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. And they don't like that. They have the same spirit of Saul and Herod. They are paranoid. They are power hungry. They, uh, you know, Herod tries to have Jesus killed as a, as a child, and now they're going to have Jesus killed in the Roman courts. And little did they know they were fulfilling prophecy to the T. You see, the ascension would not come before the crucifixion. And even after his death, there would be an interval before resurrection, right? There's three days, an interval. And even after resurrection, there would be another interval, these 40 days where he's, he's with them before he ascends. Earlier, I mused about the 40 days and how effective that must have been apologetically. You know, when Matthew's getting a hard time for, what, I don't know, whatever the girlfriend he had when he lost his tax collector job, and he's like, hey girl, go see, I told you. You know, like how powerful that would have been, evangelizing skeptics by just showing them Jesus. Well, what's the deal with 40? In the Bible, the waiting of 40 days is significant. There's over 100 times in the Bible, we don't have time to survey it, but 40 and waiting are found in the Scripture in great significance. Scholars note during Moses' life, he lived 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, before God selected him to lead the people out of slavery. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, on two separate occasions, receiving God's laws. God, uh, Moses sent spies into the land of promise for 40 days, right? Think about the Exodus itself. It's a, it's a period of 40. It's often used for a generation. We think of the Israelites who left Egypt and wandered 40 years because that generation was not allowed to enter the kingdom of God because of their faithlessness. The book of Exodus itself, how many chapters is it? 40. The themes of Exodus are woven into the life of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Not only is Jesus presented as the greater David, he is also presented as the greater Moses. He typologically is fulfilling what Israel did not do under the law of Moses. He obeys it to the T and gives himself 
as a ransom for his people. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. What did Israel do in the wilderness? They doubted and did not heed God's word. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? He said, the word of God is my food. He fought the kingdom of darkness and overcame. 40 is a period of judgment and failure, which Jesus takes upon himself for us. Think about the flood of judgment in Genesis with Noah. How long was it? 40 days, 40 nights, Genesis 7. Think of Jonah, who prophesied the destruction of Nineveh in 40 days. God was gracious to Nineveh. It did not come. So too, God was gracious to Jerusalem, to the earth, to me and you. It has not come. Jesus did the 40 for us. He died for us, and now he rules as our coming king. Speaking of kings and thinking of this 40-time stamp, scholars note the first three human kings of the children of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, each ruled for 40 years. Jesus is the king. He's, he's fulfilling this in this period of 40, and then he ascends into heaven, and what takes place when he does that is coronation. We recently witnessed the coronation of King Charles in the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth realms. It took place this month, May the 6th, at Westminster Abbey. I did my PhD work in England, and so I've, I've grown fond of things English. Uh, I now like beans with my breakfast and all sorts of weird things. I haven't, I haven't uh, crossed the Rubicon to put milk in my tea. That's still weird to me, but I've taken on some English things. And as a result of, of spending time over there or whatever, you know, the coronation was kind of cool. Westminster Abbey, like I, I go to Westminster Abbey whenever I'm there. In fact, uh, last year uh, when my family was there, uh, we, we all went and sat in a service in Westminster Abbey. Uh, my son Obi fell asleep, and my dad too, uh, but it was, it was a cool service, you know. And so with the coronation, you know, we're watching it on TV, and I'm showing my kids, we were there, man, we were there, we were in that room, you know, isn't that, isn't that crazy? Look at this coronation, look at, look at all the people that are there. There's over 2,000 guests from 203 countries, and there's all these rich and powerful and great people of position, and, and you know, the, the ceremony was incredible, it was rich with scripture and worship and symbols, and whether it's pomp and circumstance, going through the motions are sincere, I don't know, but it looked cool. That said, it pales in comparison to what happened on Holy Thursday when Jesus entered a greater sanctuary than Westminster, the heavenly court of heaven. Can you imagine the angels of heaven, the saints of God, disembodied, their souls crying out, and here the embodied and risen human man, God the Son, comes to be coronated? People were so excited to see the coronation of King Charles. All the members of the British royal family, prime ministers, presidents, in our case, Lady Jill, but whatever, right? Uh, you, you had Lionel Richie and Katy Perry, that goofy hat, and Emma Thompson, and you know, you go, look at all these special people. It has nothing on Holy Thursday, church. Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Isaiah, down the list, angels like Gabriel and Michael who've been watching this thing unfold, reading this book in their lives and watching it from the heavens, and now he comes up and enters into the holy chapel. The 40 days of, of waiting or the build-up to this coronation on this note, it is worth noting that coronation is formality in a sense. I'm going to take that back with reference to the ascension, but for now, in a sense, so for example, Charles was king already. 
Technically, he ascended the throne on September the 8th, 2022, upon the death of his mother, Elizabeth. Charles became king immediately upon the death of his mother. Okay? Now, he was proclaimed king in, in the ceremony, in the coronation, but he was already king. And so, too, for Christ, he was already king. He was already king. He, was al- he already had that position. Now, it wasn't a formality, because this, was a, this is a glorious reality that he is entering us into with his ascension. You know, in theology, we speak about the minus triplex of Jesus, that Jesus is, is a prophet, a priest, and a king. We speak of these offices, and we think of the ascension of Jesus. I, I would be uh, also in this to, to, to be remiss not to remind you that he's our prophet, priest, and king. He already had those titles before the coronation. The coronation is just a grand worship experience where, where the heavens are, are watching it. Um, Speaking, speaking of these offices and the, and the ascension of, of Jesus and, and picturing that, that heavenly scene and, and thinking about what is going on and all of that, it's meant to stir our anticipation. Next point on your outline of His coming. The prophet, the priest, and the king is coming again. We have this saying that what most goes up must come down. Recall what we saw in Acts 1. The, the angels said to those disciples that in the same way that He went up, He's going to come down. In his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke a ton about the second coming. Understand that the ascension of Jesus into heaven is not an end to his earthly life. It is only just begun. He is not finished. Think of what Jesus said in John 14. Look at this, church. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus promised that he was going to go. He was going to ascend. And in his ascension, he would start this work of preparing a place for his people. And he would come back and bring his church to this place. Now, Jesus spoke of rescuing his church to bring them to this place. And Jesus also spoke in his teachings of his second coming, of coming back to judge sin and renew the earth. There's not time to cover all the eschatology, but there is one passage I'd like to take you to before we close. It is the last, the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. Find your way to Revelation 21. This brings us to the final point of the body of this message. We've moved from creation, corruption, covenant, Christ, coronation. He's coming again. The coronated king will come to consummation. I've asked you to turn to Revelation 21. In Revelation 19, we see the ascended the ascended prophet, priest, king, Jesus in heaven. We see in Revelation 19, heavens open up and the ascension is reversed. What goes up must come down and he comes back down into the sky. The king leaves heaven. He comes into the sky. He lands down and descends on earth and he puts an end to evil. A lot of people say there can't be a good God if there's evil in the world. And I go, well, that that assumes that he's not coming back to do something about it. He will. And I don't think that you'll like what he does, but you know, that's neither here nor there. He's, he's coming back. And he's going to end evil. In chapter 20, we read about his kingdom, and it lasts for 1,000 years. Hence, we refer to this as a millennium. Then there is a final judgment day in Revelation 20, and then there's consummation. And now look at Revelation 21 that I asked you to turn to. After all of that, the ascended Lord of glory in heaven comes back to the earth, And then what does he do? Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven. I saw a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Full circle. What we saw in point one, creation and God being with them. Corruption, removing His presence. The, the Christ bringing His presence. Right? Now we see full consummation. God, God's back... He's back in the creation again. And what does He do, verse 4? He wipes away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed. And He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write these words. They are faithful and true. Jesus is in heaven working, preparing a place for us unfolding a plan that's going to fully come in consummation and everything is going to be reversed. People, well, There's countless books that have been written and countless sermons that have been preached on, on Christmas and, and, and the Christ's entrance into the world and His death on the cross and His resurrection. Christmas and Easter, those are our big holidays. But I, I really wanted to pause today on this holy day to, to really hit hard a neglected topic and I hope it has fed you well. I want to conclude by saying, what does this mean, though, sort of for us in practice? We looked at the Gospel accounts that describe the ascension, passages where Jesus is talking about it and predicting it. As you move into the New Testament writings in the Apostles, you see them reflecting on the significance. So what does this doctrine or this historical event mean for me? Well, number one, it, it pictures in Jesus a redeemed humanity. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power which He has even to subject all things to Himself. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23 spoke of Jesus as the first fruit, as a prototype. So what we saw happen with Him, rising from the dead, having a new body that can't die, that's going to happen to us. He's the prototype. Theologian Tim Chester, writing on the Ascension, notes, For Christians, Jesus is our man in heaven. He is there for us and on our behalf. He is our representative in heaven, securing our salvation by His presence. In His body. Now, I don't have time to tease out some implications here. I, I'm, I'm totally tempted, but there isn't the time. I think this has implications for our bodies. Uh, Jesus' body, risen, perfected. I think this has implications for all the nonsense going on now, right, right now about what, gender and body parts. and uh, I mean, yeah, I could go crazy. I'm going to stop myself. But there's, there's a lot of significance here in that the body is, is sacred and risen and perfected. In, in, in talking about those cultural issues, people tend to get all riled up and they start turning to culture wars rather than returning to the true power of the gospel and God's people and what this church needs which brings a second point of application. We move from picturing a Jesus, a redeemed humanity, to partnering with Jesus in and through His church. When, when, when the New Testament talks about the ascension of Jesus, they, they see this, the authors of the New Testament, as something that we get to partner in. It's mystical. In Ephesians 4, Paul vividly reflects on Christ's ascension. In 4, 8 through 10, he quotes the coronation psalm in Psalm 68, he describes Jesus reigning over the church and, and Jesus pouring out gifts on His church. He's partnering with His church. In Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 19, he, uh, Jesus spoke of how He would rule over His church from heaven. 
In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we see the same thing. Jesus is ruling over his church and he's working through his church. In the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, uh, uh, Jesus comes to the disciples before he ascends and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All, all power is given to me for you to go and to make disciples. Jesus makes an allusion in Matthew 28 to Daniel 7, which we spoke about today. You see, Jesus' ascension is what gives him that power. Daniel 7, when the Son of Man comes to the heavens, he's given that power by the Ancient of Days. And now Jesus stands with his disciples and says, I, I have that power. Uh, Dr. Chester writes, mission is the logic of ascension. The mission to go and make disciples. We, we get to participate in this. Think of the pattern in Scripture. Moses passed his work on to Joshua. Elijah passed on his work to Elisha. The rabbis, the philosophers, had their disciples. Jesus' ascension, immediately after the commission, leaves believers as his successors. We get to partner with him. And, and we're working with him. We're his partners. You, ever ha you, you hear the boss at work say, oh, we got a new employee? You're like, oh, man. You know, oh, who's the new person? It's like... We're the new employees, and, and Christ is the CEO of this thing. And we get to partner with Him. And so, so in that, we, we find the power and the reassurance of the work that is given to us. We find, we find power in the face of suffering. Acts 7, remember when Stephen was, was partnering with Jesus and preaching the gospel, and, 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 and he was martyred for it. What, what happened in Acts 7.55? Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's the pattern in Acts. In Acts 9, Jesus uh, comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, sets him on mission. In Acts 22, Paul recounts the vision. In Acts 26, again before Agrippa, he says, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. We see the heavens working through the church. Acts 10 through 11, Peter sees the heavens opened up and he hears a voice from heaven. Do not call unclean what I've made clean. And that, that pours out the mission to the Gentiles. The heavens are working through the church in this mystical union, we thirdly get to participate with Jesus in heaven. The New Testament talks about the ascension this way. Jesus dwells in heaven, and, and, and somehow, mystically, we get to participate with His dwelling in heaven. So not only is He coming down and using us, but we're also, we're also raised up with Him in this. Uh, Peter talks about the ascension. In 1 Peter 3, He is at the right hand of God. Having gone into heaven, angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to Him. Paul says believers in Ephesians 2 have been raised up with Jesus and seated with Him in heaven. I are in, uh, you are in me and I in you, John 17. And so where He is, we are. So there's a weird union where we're actually in the heavens with Him. A union with Christ from heaven to us by the Spirit. Oh, how precious and sweet that is. I pray that encourages you this morning. Writing on this, uh, Dr. Mark Olerovo uh, Olivero writes, those united in Christ get to participate in His ascension. God the Father has raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Calvin said in the Institutes of Christian Religion, the Lord by His ascension into heaven has opened up the access to the heavenly kingdom, which Adam shut. For having entered it in our flesh, as it were in our name, it follows that we are in manner seated in heavenly places, not entertaining a mere hope of heaven, but possessing it in our head. The head is Christ. Again, there is union from heaven by the Spirit, so sweet, so empowering. And the final point that I would have in terms of application for what ascension means for us, it means that we are a people who are patiently waiting. 
We read in our public reading of Scripture this morning from uh, 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, he, he, he has these lines about this point. He says, uh, don't let this one fact escape you, 2 Peter 3. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He goes on to talk about how the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He goes on to talk about how the Lord will come and bring the new heavens and the new earth. He's, he's talking about the ascended Lord coming back, what we covered this morning. The New Testament closes with the ascended Lord in heaven in Revelation 22.20, saying, I'm coming soon. I'm coming again. And so we, as His people, as we study the doctrine of ascension, we are reminded He's coming again. We're reminded we have union with Him. We are reminded of the great blessing that we get to partner with Him. He's accomplished all of this for us. It is fitting now, having heard His Word, having heard the Gospel proclaimed, that we would respond by picturing the Gospel in the Lord's table. And we would respond in coming to sing praises to Him. That mystical union of earth and heaven, we join when we sing with angels and saints of old, appraising the risen One. There's a human in His body in heaven. The God-man who gives us access to heaven. We're seated with Him. When we praise, though we are in this little room here in West Los Angeles, there's a sense in which we are actually in the heavens, joining with the angels and the saints of old. The King has come. The King is coming again. Let us respond in repentance of faith. Let's pray and we'll sing and have communion. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You sent Your Son to accomplish everything that He did. We thank You, O Son, that You ascended on high, coronated as the great King and prophet and priest of Your people, and that You will return and You will make all things new. Lord, we confess that we are impatient. We confess that the pains of this life uh, make us anxious. We confess that worse than being impatient and anxious, we're rebellious. We soil ourselves with sin. We, we, we lean on our own strength to walk in holiness. We, we rely on and run to so many things besides You. Oh, how foolish we can be. The author to the Hebrews speaks of, of the ascended Son and tells us that we can run to the throne room of grace. We can come to You now, and, and there You are, the priest in heaven, and You offer forgiveness. Lord, may there be no one here this morning who leaves this room without running to You and finding forgiveness and wholeness in You. May there be no one who is in You who leaves today uh, holding on to sin. We confess it now, Lord. Come, bring us repentance and faith. Come, bring us joy for our salvation. As we come to the table, we, 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 we want to picture what it is that You have done. As we sing praises to You, Lord, we pray that You would work through the ministry of music and communion to draw us in sweet union with You. In Christ's name, Amen.